There's a global war on wealth. Learn about how to own your freedom, control your time, protect your wealth, and preserve your legacy. The only place for unfiltered discussion about what impacts your wealth. The Sexton Show. Hello, and welcome to The Sexton Show. I am joined today by attorney John Richardson, who is in Canada, and he is probably one of the world's leading experts on expatriation, uh, which for those of you who don't know, is the act of renouncing your U.S. citizenship. And uh, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your practice? Sure, yeah. So my name is John Richardson. I'm based in Toronto, Canada. Um, for the most part, you can find me at citizenshipsolutions.ca. And uh, I essentially uh, have a very, very niche practice where I work with people afflicted with U.S. citizenship and green card problems, uh, which uh, are many over the last uh, years. And for many of people with these problems, expatriation really is the only option. And that has its own degree of complexity, depending on the complexity of people's individual circumstances. I think you rightly say people afflicted with U.S. citizenship. What would you say in your experience is the main reason that U.S. citizens give up their U.S. citizenship? Well, the main reason, and this is really come to a head since uh, FACA, uh, which was enacted in 2010 and and the IGA took effect in 2014, has to do with, I think, two broad categories. Now, the first is that there are many, many U.S. citizens living outside the United States who can't get bank accounts uh, unless they are able to supply Social Security numbers, uh, which leads them generally down to the road to U.S. tax compliance. And uh, U.S. tax compliance uh, is in part about filing taxes, in part. But mostly it's about very invasive reporting, which extends to people's uh, spouses, is actually being subjected to a tax system that actually treats Americans abroad in a more punitive way than it does homeland Americans. And the reason for that is that from the point of view of Americans abroad, all their assets are local to them, but foreign to the United States. And similarly, their income is local to them, but foreign to the United States. And as you know, particularly when you get into the area of investment income, PFIC rules and things like that, it can become a nightmare. Uh, they renounce because they want to be able to set up uh, their own small businesses uh, in the form of corporations. Uh, very difficult to do that as a U.S. citizen if the business entity is, is deemed to be a controlled foreign corporation. Uh, with the subpart F rules in general and guilty uh, in particular. Though what this all leads to is that people renounce because honestly, they can't understand what's required of them. They live in a constant state of, of fear, anxiety, and some desperation, depending on how the rules apply. So it's, it's a big problem. A similar experience that I've had with, with my clients, that at the end of the day, it boils down to their expatriating more or less because of tax problems. Right? It doesn't seem that it's necessarily that they're expatriating to avoid tax, right? Because a lot of these people aren't even paying any tax. It's just to not have to deal with the tax situation and the uncertainty that surrounds that. Yeah, I think that is exactly right. And I want to underscore what you said there was they do not expatriate to avoid tax. Uh, most of them, uh, you know, especially in Canada and that because of tax credit rules and this sort of stuff, pay don't pay a lot of tax. There are some, of course, who do, but for the most part, they don't. They're expatriating, expatriating because to be subject to these rules 
is a far greater burden in life than they can bear. And that includes the inability to engage in responsible financial and retirement planning, according to local tax rules where they live. There's a, a section of the code, and I forget what section it is, but I'm sure you know, used to classify people differently if they were to expatriate for tax reasons. I think that that provision of the code somewhat became obsolete when they changed the expatriation rules back in 2009 and instituted this exit tax. But from what I recall, isn't there a provision somewhere that says if you expatriate for tax reasons that they can deny you entry into the United States? Uh, right. So actually, you're talking about two very, uh, it's actually worse than you remember. Uh, there's two different areas where this plays itself out. The first uh, part is where you ask about the denial of entry. That's actually in the Immigration and Nationality Act. And if you look in there, you will find under the definition of excluded aliens, uh, you know, and there are steps to get where it's not automatic, where basically right. you renounced U.S. citizenship to avoid U.S. taxation, commonly referred to as the Reed Amendment. Uh, as far as I know, that's only been applied about twice. But the other area where the motivation to uh, reduce tax played into it and by the way, the Reed Amendment's been around since the 90s. Yep. But uh, the other area is that the expatriation rules prior to 2004 basically applied only to the extent that there was a tax motive avoidance. And that was changed really in the 2004 amendments, uh, mm -hmm. which basically just said, well, you know, if you meet A, B, and C, you're subject to the expatriation rules. If I remember correctly, the, the change in 2004 is it was sort of a, a, there was a presumption. If you met these tests, there was a presumption that it was done for tax reasons, but it was a rebuttable presumption. But I think starting in 2004, they just started adopting objective tests that didn't presume anything one way or the other. If you're a covered expatriate, you're subject to these rules. If not, then no. Okay. But today, people have to deal with the exit tax rules, regardless of motivation. Exactly. So it seems like everybody that's expatriating nowadays, it's tax motivated. Not necessarily from a tax payment standpoint, but from a tax compliance standpoint. And it's internal revenue code motivated. Exactly. How would the Reed Amendment impact that? So is it possible that somebody could be denied entry into the US because they expatriated, because they didn't want to have to deal with the compliance nightmare, even though they weren't avoiding any taxes? I think that that would very definitely be a stretch in how to read that. I mean, the language of it's pretty clear, Okay. Uh, you know, to avoid taxation. I, you know, I live in Canada and there are, I mean, a lot of people renouncing U.S. citizenship in Canada. And um, the vast majority of people who I have worked with uh, do not and have not for many years paid any U.S. tax at all. Yeah. Uh, yet they feel they have to get out from under the burden of this thing uh, for other reasons. I think that if the United States reaches the point where they are interpreting all expatriations as a tax avoidance, I think the problem takes care of itself because I doubt anybody would want to go there anyway at that point. I remember when I expatriated, I was asked by the consular officer that I was meeting with why I was expatriating. And before I could even give an answer, they said, don't say tax. Yeah, I, I would imagine that in a general sense, uh, the consular officers are, you know, are aware of that. My impression of this is that the, the consulates and embassies where people renounce don't know a great deal about the tax situation. You know, they probably think that it's either benign or, uh, you know, just some kind of an inconvenience uh, when it's anything but. But, you know, certainly 
I guess almost everybody who I help with expatriation. And in my experience, 90% of times, nobody's ever asked about tax. And if they are, the answer is simple. How, how can I be renounced to avoid tax if I haven't paid any tax? Have you ever had any of your clients that have expatriated have problems traveling back to the United States? Um, not a single one. Not, not a single, single one. one. The, the, see, the reason is, though, okay, that doesn't mean it couldn't happen. Okay. Yeah. The reason is that, you know, when you expatriate, you're treated as a citizen of whatever country you are. Now, again, I live in Canada. So if a Canadian expatriates, you don't need a visa. You can just walk across the border with a passport. Uh, you know, I mean, unless unless they have, I mean, I'd be careful for people who have criminal records, right? Mm-hmm. That, you know, that could make them excludable alien. This is a conversation. Sure. You need to have, but but most people who renounce are not in that category for a very simple reason. They're renouncing because they want to be in compliance with the laws where they live. You know, sure. that's really why they're renouncing. So Canadians walk in easily, but let's imagine for a minute, uh, say a, a dual uh, Iran U.S. citizen, or at least yeah. from an American point of view. I don't think Iran recognizes dual citizenship. Yeah, they don't. So, so if an Iranian were to renounce U.S. citizenship, then that Iranian is subject to whatever immigration rules apply to Iranian citizens at that time. And, you know, you can see that that's far different from, uh, you know, showing up with a Canadian passport. One of the things that a lot of people don't understand about U.S. citizenship is you don't really have a choice whether or not you're born a, a U.S. citizen, right? I, I think with most countries, for example, if you have somebody that say, let's say, is born and, and has a right to Austrian citizenship, they would need to apply. They're not automatically an Austrian citizen, even though they qualify for it. They would have to apply for it and go through the process in order to be granted it. But you can be a U.S. citizen even without having a passport ever. Oh, you can be a citizen of any country without having a passport. I mean, a passport is just a travel document you can get given that you are a citizen. The uh, the U.S. thing, I mean, clearly if you're born in the U.S. subject to having relinquished, you're going to be a U.S. citizen. Right. The more interesting question is the people born outside the United Correct. States. This is an interesting problem because I have grappled with the question for many years. of Can the United States really impose citizenship? Uh, on somebody, in other words, forcibly impose citizenship on somebody not born in the United States. The prevailing view is that, uh, that yes, people born outside the United States are two U.S. citizens, as one of a number of examples, are automatically U.S. citizens, uh, whether anybody knows about it or not. You know, I think that people ought to think long and hard before going to the U.S. Council, for example, and registering a birth abroad or something. The claim to U.S. citizenship, uh, whether it's uh, automatic or you have to apply for it, the claim to U.S. citizenship is something that can actually be exercised at, at any time. And I have had, I have worked with people who have claimed U.S. citizenship, you know, in their 20s, 30s. I've helped people renounce who didn't even, had no inkling they were U.S. citizens in their 40s. You generally have to get a Social Security number, which is a, to deal with the tax thing, which is a nightmare yeah. in itself. This is not mostly the people who I deal with, but I have had enough time so I remember it. People born outside the United States with no actual proof they're U.S. citizens, but except for the fact they were born to U.S. citizen parents or something like that. And they actually want to renounce, even though they're not born in the United States and there's no you know, particular evidence they're being U.S. citizens. Right. And for these people, 
for them to renounce. The problem becomes being able to prove they're a U.S. citizen, to be able to renounce. So, you know, there just seems to be no end to the permutations here. Uh, that is a very interesting situation and not one that I've ever run into. A matter of fact, every single client that I've ever helped renounce, every single one of them has, has had a U.S. passport. I mean, so, so some of them had never used it. Some of them it was expired. A lot of them never had a, a social security number. But most of them, a matter of fact, all of them did have a U.S. passport. And what was surprising to me is there was a lot of people that I helped who were born to Americans outside of the U.S. But it was what was what I really found amazing was how many people were born in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s while the parents were there on a two-year work stint. And then they had this passport and they just never really gave it much thought. They just kept renewing it. And then when FATCA came out, they were like, well, you know, now I have to deal with this. They call themselves accidental Americans. In more, you know, there's a lot of those. You say, you know, I've just had this U.S. passport they keep renewing. And in my experience, you know, there's also a lot of them who were born in the United States, may have had a U.S. passport when they were little kids or maybe not. And uh, they're still affected by this because of the, uh, you know, in Europe, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the identity card showing place of birth. No, it's very true because if the place of birth says United States, you almost have to carry your certificate of loss of nationality with you, the same like a passport to prove that uh, you no longer have the U.S. citizenship. Well, well, you do. And what's interesting is that, uh, you know, in the 20th century, a U.S. passport was probably, you know, the best document you could have for your business and uh, financial future, mobility future in the 21st century. It's actually the certificate of loss of nationality uh, that is now the best document that you can have. See, part, part of the problem with this is, right, that this affects many, many different kinds of people. And at a minimum, you've got what I would call the American expatriates. These are people who, you know, grew up in the United States and maybe right. they go overseas for a few years for this reason or that reason, but they intend to return. Uh, second group would be the accidental Americans who, uh, you know, have may not even be aware that they're American citizens. Some cases may not speak English. Certainly do not regard themselves as primarily American. They regard themselves as citizens of whatever country they are. So we have the American species. And then, then we have and the ones who have the most serious problems. The third group are the ones who I would call emigrants, spelled with an E, emigrants, Americans who move from the United States permanently to other countries and you know become entrenched in the tax and financial planning systems of other countries. And these are the ones who... Oh my God, they, they, they absolutely really have to get out. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. because once you start getting into another country's pension systems and their investment schemes or retirement schemes, it just becomes impossible as, as, as a U.S. citizen. Well, the whole, the whole um, U.S. tax system is basically premised on the idea that anything that is foreign is subject to penalty and that any interaction with a non-U.S. entity, corporation, trust, or even pension plan, you know, is really just engaging in some kind of sacred instrument of tax evasion. And it goes even further. Most people don't even realize that how the Internal Revenue Code actually negatively punishes American citizens who marry non-citizens. Trying to be a tax-compliant U.S. citizen living outside the United States on a permanent basis is somewhere between extremely difficult and expensive and basically impossible. 
that is, if your goal is to be financially responsible and engage in retirement planning. When you talk about Americans that emigrate to another country that becomes very complicated is estate planning, right? The U.S. is, is one of the countries that taxes a decedent's estate before it ever even gets to the heirs. Whereas a lot of countries, especially in Europe, they tax the heirs on what they receive, right? So if you have an, an American living in Germany, let's say, it's a $20 million estate, we'll use it, you know, really high numbers, you would have a 40% estate tax on the decedent's estate before when it goes to the kids. And then I think Germany levies like a 50% estate tax on what's received by the kids. Yeah, so this is, this is a problem that is so huge, okay? That, let me say first that when it comes to this, I just have a list of people who I refer people to, <laughs> uh, number one. Uh, number two is this, that um, there are, you know, as, as you know, the United States has some, some state and gift tax treaties with different countries that yep. tend to mitigate this type of stuff. But uh, here's a message for listeners. I would be very, very careful about renouncing U.S. citizenship if you're in that category of person who could be potentially subject to both U.S. estate tax and inheritance or estate taxes in another country. Believe it or not, there are certain U.S. tax treaties that actually protect U.S. citizens from double taxation in those cases. And I don't have a list of them because anytime you get involved in this, you have to relearn it. You're on a case by case by case and country by country basis. But I think mm -hmm. Ireland may be one of them. I think Germany may be, okay, since mm -hmm. you use Germany as an example. But again, my message here is be careful, okay? In other words, put another way, that, you know, there are people who should not renounce U.S. citizenship because U.S. citizenship will actually give them protection from certain estate and perhaps inheritance taxation of other countries. One of the few situations where expatriation doesn't help you. One of the things that becomes even more complex when you start talking about the gift and estate planning is the covered expatriates and the fact that gifts or, or bequests left to their heirs will be taxed to the heirs. In certain situations, you know, it would be wise for them to keep their U.S. citizenship as well, because I haven't found any way around that provision of the code. Well, let me give you an example here, a recent situation. I mean, it's simple enough. So I was recently working with this family that, you know, were a relatively young couple. They had a very good business going. They were clearly covered expatriates, meaning they were over the $2 million. They had, I think, three U.S. citizen children or something like that. And, you know, the question for them was to expatriate or not to expatriate. And, of course, if they if they did not expatriate, you know, what would that mean down the road for uh, estate planning? So this is a business that, let's say, the family's worth $10 million today, and that includes the business. Well, this is a young couple. 40 years from now, I could imagine that family being worth a hundred million or more, right? right? If they kept their saying, you know, so let's say now that they were to renounce they were covered expatriates, right? Covered expatriates, their kids remain U.S. citizens. At the end of the day, when they leave that kid a hundred million dollars, the U.S. would want 40 million. In other words, it's not restricted to the value, the net worth at the time of expatriation. Right. It's any distribution or gift down the road. And this is, like, this is just indescribably draconian. And this is why, or one of the reasons why, when counseling people, 
I think any responsible advisor should be educating on people on why the family expatriation is probably a good idea. In terms of a family expatriation, it seems like you know you could become an American at any age, right? And usually at birth through your parents or because you're born in the U.S. But at what age can you expatriate and get rid of that? Because it, I, I know that there's some restrictions around that. And it seems like a family expatriation, at least when the kids are before they're of the age that they can expatriate, is possible. When we use the word expatriation, uh, first of all, we're talking about Section 349A of the Immigration Nationality Act. And I think it's important to understand that renunciation is one form of expatriation. There are other ways of expatriating. The statute itself for renunciation does not say you have to be at least 18, but the court decisions talking about this type of stuff, because they talk about intention, uh, the assumption is that it requires a clear understanding of what you're doing, and that includes a clear understanding of what you may be giving up. So as a general principle, as a general principle, my understanding is the counselors are loath to let somebody who's under 18 renounce, okay? although. I don't think that's a statutory requirement. I think it's, yeah. it's more of a State Department policy. Bottom line is that most people seem to leave this or think in terms of, you know, being 18, although I don't think that's a legal requirement. Interestingly, in the Internal Revenue Code uh, that governs the exit tax rule, Section 877A, there is an out for people who renounce before the age of 18 and a half. And basically all they have to do is certify that they're tax compliant in order to do that. But that seems to me to be loosely correlated to you know, the, the issue of the 18 year old thing. So I don't think it's a legal requirement. I think it may be a practical reality in some parts of the country. But what I have been told before was that it was left up to the individual embassies to decide how to implement that rule. Well, I, I think you need. A, I think you need three categories of thoughts. Okay, the first is what the statute says. Okay, right. in any case law surrounding it. The second is, what does the Foreign Affairs Manual say? You can look this up, the FAM, okay. you know, on this type of stuff, because it lays out, you know, the basic procedures. But the third is, and I think that this is the thing that governs everything all the time, is whether the person. Uh, remember, there's a constitutional requirement that you have to be renouncing with the intention of actually divesting yourself of U.S. citizenship. Right. So, you know, that means, as a matter of fact, that people have to understand what they're doing and what they're giving up. You have to have the requisite intent. Exactly. And somebody who's over 18, you know, could be found to not have the requisite intent. What about somebody who's 95 years old, for example? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, you have this problem. I mean, I've had this, this. Well, I've never, you know, I've never had problems at the end of the day. But, um, you know, I remember uh, very well working with a man who was in his early 90s. And, uh, you know, he had um, the beginnings, I think, of Parkinson's. He was very, he was reasonably sharp, but he just didn't look reasonably sharp, right? right. And I was worried that he might have problems, uh, you know, passing the, uh, the intention hurdle. And, you know, so I had his family in and, you know, I mean, I didn't overdo it, but I, you know, made the point that, hey, you know, here's what we need to be clear on. Um, and... You know, the, they, what they told me was that when he went to the, uh, the, this was actually at one of the embassies, that he went to the embassy, uh, they actually had three or four different people talk to him. Wow. 
uh, which was interesting. And then they told me that there was actually a follow-up phone conversation a week or two later. So, um, interesting. you know, I, I mean, the follow-up phone conversation may have just had to do with the paperwork, but uh, there's no way that having three or four people talk to him was part of the interview. That I have not heard of. No, uh, I've never heard before. of that either. So, you know, I mean, that was clearly. But listen, um, you know, that's what they should be doing. For sure. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Uh, I'm sure we're expatriation lawyers, but I, I'm sure you would agree with me that that doesn't mean U.S. citizenship has no value. Of course it has value. Of course, right? yeah. Uh, you know, especially if you want to live in the United States. So although on the one hand, I think that many Americans abroad are left with no choice, uh, it's, it is not the case that they're giving up nothing. You know, and that, and that needs to be understood and probed. Thank you for joining us on the Sexton Show today. John, thank you for being with us. My pleasure and looking forward to round two. Learn more about Jimmy's approach to wealth structuring and client relationships by visiting jsprivate.com and subscribing to our email list. Stay protected. See you next time.